Our Bible reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. You notice that in chapter 11, he enters Jerusalem as king. And now there's a feast. One who becomes king, what follows is a feast. But there's something very surprising here. This king who offers the feast is the one who lays down his life for us so that he can become our king. And being our king, a feast also follows. So really you can put Mark 11 through 15 and you can encapsulate it in those two paragraphs, you could say. King Feast lays down his life so that he can become our king, having risen from the dead, alive, living, our living Lord, so that we can enjoy the feast, as we see today, symbolizing the bread and the wine. So chapter 14, verses 12 through 25, really belongs as one unit, eh? Pardon? Institution of the Lord's Supper. So it's very fitting with the day that's before us. Yes. Verse 14, verse 12, sorry. Let's hear God's word. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb. Understand that the Passover was the first day of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Okay, so the two the two feasts very closely connected. The Passover is the first day of seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So here on the first day of Unleavened Bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, as surely I say to you, One of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom 
of God. There you see the three sections, right? The feast, the betrayal, and the sacrifice. So yes, brothers and sisters, beloved in Christ, people fail us, don't they? You never totally trust another person. People will fail us. They even betray us. And it's worse when friends do that to us. And even worse yet, if family members do that to us. What happens is that trust then is broken. And it's often very, very difficult to restore that trust again, isn't it? Sometimes it takes years to forgive especially those who are very close to us who have hurt us so badly. But there is one, one you can always go to who never fails, and that's Jesus. You know, he is worthy, infinitely worthy of all your trust and love. How can you be sure about this? How can you know this? Well, our passages will show this And I trust and pray that we may be drawn by the love of Jesus to come to him and to know that whatever our background, whatever our sins, whatever our record, we can come to him freely and knowing that he fully receives us by God's grace to all who believe on him. You know, at this feast, Jesus is betrayed. By whom? by one of his closest companions. And yet we have to see that he's the one. Jesus is the one. He's the king, let's not forget. He's the one who planned it this way for your redemption. Imagine that. He uses the betrayal of himself for your redemption. What love that is. And he's going to be the food for the feast. And that's the Lord's Supper, right? He shows that he gives his body, his blood, as a sacrifice for us. Welcome. Come on in. So in light of Mark 14, Mark chapter 14, 12 through 25, this is, if you bring it all together, we see that the Passover feast, we'll get into what the Passover is, The Passover feast, Jesus reveals himself as the final sacrifice for sinners. And we're going to see three things here. Jesus is the one who hosts the feast. We're reading from Marcus, Chalda, Marcus, Mark 12, sorry, Mark 14, 12 through 25. We're going to see, first of all, that Jesus himself hosts the feast. He announces his betrayer. And he gives himself to be the sacrifice. Notice that Jesus and his disciples, they're coming together for one last meal. One last meal, one last supper together. And this is known as the annual Passover feast. It's Thursday evening. The next day, he will be crucified on the cross. It's a highly emotional time. Imagine the depth of the suffering that our Savior is experiencing. 
You know, as an aside, sometimes you hear on the news a person describing in detail the last meal of a criminal before he's executed. They describe what he eats. He had his fried egg, a little bit of bacon, and his last, last soda. And then they really focus on his final moments before he is whisked away to the electric chair. Emotional. It, it's, it, it, it strikes you. But understand here that Jesus, the Son of God, is without sin. He's not a criminal. He is innocent. God of God, very God of very God. And he doesn't deserve this. And yet, through all this, don't see him as a victim. Christ does not want us to see him as a victim. He's king. He's the one who's controlling all events, even among his enemies, to carry out the plot that's against him. He is Lord. He is walking purposefully toward his death, exactly as God has planned, and in fulfillment of what God says in the Bible. Isaiah 53, 7. He is led as a lamb to the slaughter, understand as he's led as a lamb to the slaughter Christ is the one who gives himself also as the lamb to the slaughter and also remember three times already in Mark 8 verse 31 9 verse 31 and 10 verse 34 Jesus announced three times so he knows he's arranging all of this he knows that he will be betrayed into the hands of men. He said that to his disciples. He would be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. But it doesn't end there. He will conquer sin, death, and hell. And he will rise from the dead. And he will show himself to be king over all his enemies. That's really the good news of today. Christ is king. As I read this morning, he is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Right? He is king and he's going to give life to all who believe. The Passover. So this is the Passover feast. What was the Passover? Recall the time when God delivered his people, Israel, from Egypt. That goes back to Exodus 12. The night before, God led his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. His own son from Egypt. He called each household, every household was to slaughter a lamb, was to kill a lamb, and then take some of its blood and put the blood on the doorposts on the outside of their home and also on the lintel over the door. And we notice from Exodus chapter 12 that what did the Lord do? He passed over. That's where the word Passover comes from. The Lord passed over those homes with the blood on the doorposts and those blood that those homes that had the blood on the doorposts, they were spared from God's punishment. They were spared from God's wrath. That night, we also know they were to eat what? They were to eat roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. And ever since then, the Passover feast was celebrated yearly, year after year, commemorating what God had done for his people, delivering them.
But now there's a, another kind of deliverance coming. It points to a greater deliverance, the Christ. Jerusalem is bustling. Remember, at this time, it's bustling. It's hustling with lots and lots and lots of people. It's a mela. There's people, people everywhere. And they've come from all over Israel ready to celebrate the Passover. And what about Jesus? Yeah, he gathers, not with them, but he gathers with his own disciples as the nucleus of the church to celebrate the last Passover feast. As Lord, you notice, as king, he's the one who arranges all things to make all things ready. Disciples ask a question, Lord, where do you want us to go and prepare that we may eat this Passover feast? And what does Jesus do? He tells them exactly what will happen and what they are to do. I mean, you think about it. What a comfort it is for us to know that our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, he arranges, he directs every detail in our lives for our good. It's never left to chance. It's never left to Satan. He's the one. He's the one who arranges every detail in our lives for our salvation. What a, I mean, what a comfort in that. And you see that here too. The Lord arranges all the details. What does he tell his disciples? Well, he sends out two of his disciples. And we know from Luke 23, these two disciples were Peter and John. They're going to the city. And he says, and you'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, normally it was always women who carried the pitcher of water. But in this case, they would see a man carrying a pitcher of water. And he says, you make sure you follow him. And this man who's carrying the pitcher of water, he's going to go into a house. You follow him into the house. And you're going to meet the master there. And when you see the master, ask him if you can, if we can have the upper room in his home, the guest room, so that I may eat the Passover meal with my disciples. And Jesus says, and he's going to show you a large upper room. It will be furnished. It will be prepared. Okay, so Jesus knows all of this in advance. He arranges all of this in advance. And it happens exactly as the king has mentioned it. Disciples do as Jesus says. They found it just as he said it to them. And same with our lives. God works out things just as he wants it to, the exact way that he wants us to wants it to be. And so here, having prepared everything, they return to Jesus saying, Lord, the Passover is ready. And in the evening, that's when they would celebrate the Passover, they 12 come together and they sit around the Passover table. And what's on the table? On the table of flat loaves of unleavened bread. There's bitter herbs, a dish with bitter herbs. There's wine sitting there. But above all, the main course of the meal is what? A lamb. A lamb that's not broken. A roasted lamb so that all could eat from that lamb. And we have to understand two things. The meal, the Passover meal, points in two directions. This Passover lamb... It points back to the exodus from Egypt when God delivered his people from Egypt. And what, on what basis did he deliver his people from Egypt? On the basis of the blood of the lambs. So it points back to that. But now Jesus is saying, well, it also points forward. To whom? 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the true Passover lamb who delivers his people from their sins through his sacrifice, through his shedding of his blood on the cross. So points back and it points forward. It's his blood, brothers and sisters, only his blood that can cover us, that can spare us from God's eternal punishment. Only his blood, nothing else. It's his blood that God provides to cover your sins. And if we want to be spared from the eternal wrath and punishment of God, we must go to the one, the one who is the true Passover lamb, the one whose blood is sprinkled on, who sprinkles his blood on our hearts. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, God secures your redemption only because of his sacrifice. That's the feast. And suddenly, in the middle of the, fe of the feast, there's a shattering. The feast is shattered. You see in verses 18 through 21, all of a sudden Jesus announces that someone is going to betray him. One of the 12. Picture Jesus sitting at the table with his 12 disciples. He's been teaching them. He's been encouraging them. You know those chapters, John 13, John 14, 15, 16, 17? All this is Jesus' discourses in the upper room. All this has happened. He's been teaching them, encouraging them. That evening, around that table, the Lord Jesus was giving himself and all his love, the love of his heart to his disciples. Then in that quiet fellowship of his love, Jesus gives very disturbing news. Assuredly, I say to you, he says, one of you who is eating with me will betray me. What a devastating plot. What a devastating blow. What? Would one of his 12, whom he has been with for three years, whom he's been training for ministry, leaders in the church, what is this? One of them is going to betray his trust and betray his love? Yes, this is what he's saying. He says, one of you. Again, verse 20, one of the 12. One who is eating with me. That's like a stab in the vitals. It's like a stab in the heart. One so close, eating with him in this intimate fellowship. If you go to Psalm 41, verse 9, there it brings out something of the utter, utter hurt and pain of what Christ must have been going through. The words of Psalm 41, 9, what's it say? Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Maybe some of you know what it means to be betrayed by someone very close to you. Or maybe you know someone who's been betrayed by someone that was very close to them. It may be an abuse situation even in family members, 
It may be physical abuse. It may be sexual abuse or something or other wise. Betrayal can come in so many different forms. Think about one who's a member of Christ, who's part of the body of Christ, and suddenly turns away from the church, turns away from Christ. That's betrayal. Not only betrayal of Christ, but that's betrayal of the love and the trust of fellow members. It can come in so many forms, can't it? The pain, the treachery, the hurt that comes from one who betrays your love and trust. It's hard to trust again. But you know what? In those circumstances, and I think we know a lot of, I mean, perhaps even among ourselves, many others, perhaps we we know of such situations, but always, always in such circumstances, it's easy to pity ourselves and to and to live in that for years and years and years and years. Certainly must be confronted. But Christ in the midst of this would have us look to him. To look to the cross. And remember why this happened to him. Remember why he went to the cross. is because of our sin. And no one has endured such betrayal as Jesus himself. Such depth of suffering, such humiliation, such pain for us. And he's not a sinful one either. He's the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, handed over by his handed over to his enemies. By whom? One who was eating with him, one who enjoyed fellowship with him. And it's a sinful act that brings Christ to the cross. Yet you know you see Christ in his love. He chose the way of betrayal for your forgiveness and for your salvation. Can you imagine that? I mean, you, you, you see this and you say, wow, he is trustworthy. Here's one that you can, you can trust his love. You can believe his promises. This is one who will never fail you. The one who goes to such depths of agony, even suffering hell for our sakes so that we could have life. You can trust him 100%. Everything that he says in his word and what he says. This kind of treachery, we should remember, is not beyond any one of us here. I mean, think about it. Because of our sinfulness, we are all capable of doing this. It's not just some people, but every person is capable of such treachery. And you know what? The disciples are aware of this. All of a sudden, the confidence is removed from them. And they start questioning, Lord, me? Am I going to do this? And the next disciple, Lord, is it I? And on it went, all around the table. They're doubting. It made them all feel uncertain. And if anyone is capable of it, then we can really have no confidence in ourselves, can we? Never say, it can never happen to me, because that's not true. Never think that it can never happen to us, 
because our confidence is never in ourselves. It was as though the Lord Jesus removes the ground of confidence from under their feet. Is it I, Lord? But in this, you know, the Lord Jesus teaches us that the ground of our confidence never lies in ourselves. But in who? In Christ. Think of those beautiful words in Jude 24. He is the one who is able to keep you from falling. He's the only one. Apart from God's grace, we would all betray Jesus. Every one of us here. But what keeps us from doing that? Christ. Praise God for his kingship. Praise God that not even Satan can ruin that. He can keep us from falling. He can keep us from stumbling. He can keep you from doing that. Praise God for this. You know, Jesus' words at the same time as it enables us to look to Christ and to trust in him fully. At the same time, his words, somebody else is listening to those words, and that's Judas. The Lord knows what's in his heart. And so at the same time, it's a warning to Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. Jesus knows that Judas Iscariot would betray him. He says, it's one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. What's that dipping refer to? Well, that dipping refers to the dipping of bread in a bowl of stewed fruit. That was the bitter herbs. He would take the bread and dip it into the, into the bitter herbs, which was often mixed with fruit. And Jesus warns, he says, the son of man indeed goes just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Wow. Those words are striking. It's like a bolt of lightning. Isn't that? Jesus, we must remember though, is not being vindictive here. His warning is a loving warning. He could have chose not to say anything, but he did because Judas needs to hear those words. Let him ponder. Let him reflect. Let him think what he's about to do. But this betrayal, this treachery, as Jesus says, serves God's sovereign plan. And it was all according to what the Bible said. It fulfills the words of Psalm 41.9, really in its fullest and truest sense, doesn't it? But at the same time, Jesus wants Judas to be aware that it doesn't remove his responsibility of this heinous action that he is about to commit. That Judas is 100% responsible for his sinful action. He wants Judas to know that he knows and that he is fully aware. Let Jesus' words make you ponder, make Judas ponder what he is about to do. And hearing those words, hearing this warning, would only increase the guilt of Judas all the more if he does not repent, if he does not believe. Jesus says it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Wow, better not to be born than to go to hell. Hell is a terrifying and sober place. It's eternal. 
Judas, what are you doing? What are you doing? And at this point, we know from the Gospels, Judas leaves. He makes his decision. He chooses to go against Christ, his word, and to betray him into the hands of sinners. Just as God had planned from all eternity. And yet Jesus' death will not mean that his enemies win, does it? Because all this was in God's plan in order to secure redemption through the sacrifice, through the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus himself. And we're going to see later that in his resurrection from the dead, death does not have the last word. What has the last word? Life. Life. Life conquers death. Jesus conquers death. He has the last word. But he shows us that the way that he becomes king is through his sacrifice. That brings us to those last few verses, 20 through the 26. The institution. And there you see how Jesus gives himself to be the sacrifice for sinners. You know, by now, the disciples know that are in need of an assuring word from Jesus. We do we do too at times, don't we? When we're shaken to the core, when we feel like, apart from the grace of God, I would be no different than a Judas. And Christ reminds us that our confidence is not in ourselves. We need the assurance that even though we are capable of forsaking Jesus, and we definitely would fall apart from God's grace, we need the assurance that Jesus will keep us he will hold us. And is that what the scriptures say? Everyone who truly believes will never depart because ones for whom Jesus died, he will keep through faith to the very end. And so you see here that only comes because of his sacrifice by Jesus giving himself to God for us. And so the meal continues. At the same time, Jesus now changes the meal. He takes it from the shadows of the Old Testament and he brings it into the light. He takes it from the promise of the Old Testament and he brings it to fulfillment. The last Passover lamb has been eaten. The true Passover lamb, Jesus, is about to be killed. Verses 22 to 23 and 24. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. The Passover changes over to what? Into the Lord's Supper. Anytime you hear about the celebration of Passover today, it's, it's it's, uh, that belongs to the Old Testament times. It's no longer relevant for today. That's been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus institutes the new sacrament and he replaces the old. The old symbol, you notice, was bloody. Every time again, lambs would be killed and the blood would be shed. But that slaughter is no longer necessary. Why? Because Christ offered himself as the final sacrifice on the cross, the true Lamb of God who shed his blood on the cross 
to cover the sins of all, all those who trust in him. And you'll notice now, there's no need for shedding of blood anymore. You see that in so many religions today, the shedding of blood, shedding of blood, shedding of blood. But now Jesus gives a new symbol, one that's not blood, because his blood has been shed. What does he give? The new symbols? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. Both the Passover and the Lord's Supper pointed to Jesus, the only, the all-sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. The Passover always pointed forward to Jesus. The Lord's Supper points back to him. He's the center. He's the sacrifice. And all this brings out the central point. You know, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Think of that. Right? We need someone to die in our place. One who shed his blood. That's how sinful we are. That's what we deserve, the death. And yet Christ took that death in the place of all who trust on him. We see here in the institution of the suppers, God kept his side of the covenant perfectly. But who kept our side of the covenant? Because we can't. God kept that too. How? By coming in the person of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He kept our side of the covenant perfectly through his son because we could not. And by believing in Christ, what happens? God sees the perfect obedience, the perfect obedience of Jesus in his life and his death as if it were your very own. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's, that's, I mean, it's not something to imagine. It's exactly what the scriptures show and teach. Truly, this is grace. He obeyed perfectly in our place and suffered the bloody death we deserve. What love, what grace. And it all comes down to our response. What is your response? How do you respond? To this one, the sinless one, God, a very God, man who gave his life for you. Don't think that you're too sinful. Don't think you're too bad for Christ not to receive you. Come, come to him. Because that's the only way of salvation. It's the only way of life. He is come to him in faith, believing, trusting. This may surprise you, but you know what? For sinners, what do you find with Jesus? You find Jesus with open arms, ready to embrace you, ready forever to forgive and to forget all your sins, as though they have never been. That's the beauty of God's grace in Christ Jesus. It may startle us, but that really is the beauty of his welcoming heart. I think of the children of our congregation. You know how much Jesus loves you. He loves you so much. 
that he gave his life for you. And as parents too, it's so important, so important that we may lead our children to the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus, he's the one who draws our children in and through the loveliness, the loveliness of his heart. You know what I say is the most important thing that homes can do for the children? Read the stories of the Bible every day, every day. Just read the stories of the Bible. Children's storybooks, Bible itself, every day. That's not a law, but that's the love of Christ drawing you to himself so that you may sense more and more of the welcoming heart of Christ and that our children may see it. That's really a beautiful responsibility that God has given to parents. And yes, we pray that they may see Christ and all his love through the stories of Scripture, just drawing them and drawing them and drawing them to faith in him. He's that kind of Savior. May they, as sinners, be drawn to the loveliness of Jesus and to his heart, who is always ready and willing to forgive you know, the Lord Jesus lives today. He is the risen Savior from the dead. And he has spoken as king that he, that his enemies and all your enemies will never prevail against the church. And all who do not believe in Christ will perish. You see the importance of teaching children? Because if they don't believe in Christ, they perish forever. They need the blood. They need to be passed over. From the wrath of God. The Bible says this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved. It is the power of God. There's always two responses. There are those who refuse Christ. And they see the message of God. The message of Christ as foolishness. They'll perish. But to those who believe. It is the power of God. Unto salvation. The cross. You see, the power of his message today is so much what our culture needs. The culture we live in is a culture of bitterness, a culture of hatred, a culture of loneliness and isolation and sadness. But the transforming power of the cross, the message of the cross, is that Christ is able to transform us and replace those things by his love, by his forgiveness, and that is expressed in our fellowship in Christ. That's the table. It's called communion. It's called fellowship. In closing, look at verse 25. The Lord's Supper points to a far more glorious feast to come in the new creation. And that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 99, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He will return again. His people will reign with him and eat in that sweet fellowship with him without end forever and ever. People of God, is this message that needs to be spread to the people who do not know him. 
They need to see the danger of their own lives. The eternity is at stake. Let's compel them. Compel them with the love of Christ. Compel them to come in. Showing him, showing them his heart. Because they're full of hope. There's hope. And there's more to come. In him. Amen.